The text is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, and you can find it. You'll want it open. Uh, The Pew Bible, uh, it's on page 241. Last week, we considered uh, the most famous story uh, in all of world history. Uh, The story, the account of David versus Goliath. Of course, it wasn't David versus Goliath. It's Goliath uh, and his, his false gods against the living God, ultimately. At the center of that is King David, not yet king. He's just a shepherd at this point in the story. He's a young shepherd, and he is unassuming from a no-name town, and he finds himself there. Although he is, of course, very accomplished as as a shepherd, as a musician, as a poet, we see as a warrior. Uh, Of all those qualities, the thing that's most important about David is that he has a heart that's aligned with God. He's a man after God's heart. And there was a secret... uh, or, you know, not secret, but there was a there was a private, so to speak, ceremony where he is with family and he is anointed by the priest Samuel to be the next king of Israel. Uh, currently, at present, where we are in the story, though, uh, the first king of Israel is King Saul. And uh, King Saul has, uh, as we would put it in modern terms, has become unhinged. Uh, he is uh, he is losing. Uh, you know, he's coming apart because the Spirit of God has departed him. He's rejected the Word of God. He's rejected the ways of God. And, uh, and his life is, uh, is in great uh, turmoil. He, fa- he finds himself in such severe bouts of spiritual depression that King Saul can only find a, a sense of solace. Uh, the soothing comes by way of David, who's now a part-time musician who comes and plays music uh, in the king's courts to, to try to calm him in some of these bouts. David was called upon to do that. Saul does have, King Saul does have uh, a son. We're told that King Saul did love David and appreciated him for what David offered as a musician. And then we're also told that uh, he has a son. We, we read of this uh, last fall we, when we studied the, the earlier part of 1 Samuel, that there is a son, Jonathan. And King Saul has this son, Jonathan, who is also a valiant warrior and uh, who is, is, is a man much like David after God's heart. He works and operates uh, by faith. He's also one who, like David, takes uh, risks and is victorious. So I know you just had a seat, but let me invite you to stand as we read this chapter together in deference to God's word. This historic account, we know the culmination, I'll read the, the previous verses in chapter 17 that precede this. And Saul, uh, as soon as uh, we see here in verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Abner said, as, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. The, soul, the king inquired, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine, Goliath, in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow on his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good. It was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. Servants. Verse six. 
And they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine. And the women came from all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry at this saying, and it displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David tens of thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when, he saw, saw, when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fear in all of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. For he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight for the Lord's battle. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be a son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel. The Meholathite for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, well, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul's command, Saul commanded his servant, speak to David in private, and say, behold, this, the king has delighted in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servant spoke with these words in the ears of David. And David said, well, does it seem to you a little thing to come that the, the king become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall, be, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged for the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. When he saw... when and But when, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask for God's help. Father, you know uh, right now uh, all of the stories uh, in this room. You know all of the struggles. Uh, You know what we need. And so I would ask um, in the name of your son that you'd be merciful to meet us because we do believe that there is power, great power in your word and your spirit at work. Please do so. 
For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If uh, my memory uh, serves me correct, and it doesn't always, but if my memory serves me correct, there was a time, uh, for those of you who are uh, you know, over 35 or something, there was a time in American history, not too far back, and in discourse, where people uh, you know, could disagree civilly. And, uh, and, and there were even times, even with hot-button issues, that people could just be neutral. That corporations and individuals could just say, I'm not going there. I, I, I don't have an opinion. I'm not trying to form one. I'm just content to be neutral. And, and maybe that wasn't always wise. You know, maybe there was a time to be speak up or to take a stand. But at least it was an option, right? That you could be you could just be neutral, or maybe that's just a convenient thing that we should avoid. But right now, it just seems that you cannot, that you cannot be neutral. There's no uh, third way. There's no, there's, no, there's no middle or other option. And uh, the reason I, I highlight this, and yes, this is even spilled over into food. Frankly, that's, a, that's, that's, that's nuts, but it's happened. You know, now we're, now we're competing and trying to argue, not that it's an argument, who has the best spicy chicken sandwich, right? Um, <laughs> But now it's even spilled over. The Wall Street Journal had an article, and it captures all of it. I did, it summarized it so well for me. I never saw this day coming. But here's the title of the article. A divided nation reveals itself in one question. Hawaiian pizza, yes or no? <laughs> now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because, fr- frankly, I already know it's going to be one or the other. No one's going to abstain. It's a very, very – I don't want a show of hands because I don't want to have hard feelings towards some of you crazy people that think that that's acceptable for pizza topping. But I, I don't want any, I, and I don't want any division to happen in our church. Well, I, I, I hate to press us into another realm where neutrality is not an option, because there are those places where neutrality is not an option. But it is true, and, I, and this, is not in the, this is not up for the court of public opinion. We're, we're, when, we, when we enter into the to the realm of glory, of truth and error, between life and death and light and darkness, the things of God in all eternity. When we, when we think about, when we contemplate the law and the character of the living God, and particularly the words of Jesus, there's no neutrality. There's no, there's no picking and choosing. This is not... An approach to pizza toppings that you can just take off if you don't like them. Here, I know we're talking about pizza. I'm sorry. You're probably already getting hungry. But just stick with me for a little while. David is the divisive figure here in view. Now, like I said, he's probably late, late teens. 20-year-old man somewhere around there from a no-name town of Bethlehem. At least it was then. Here he is. He's been launched from a place of complete obscurity overnight into celebrity, which doesn't always go well for some people. I won't mention any names. But for David, it's not a problem. For David, his heart, as I mentioned earlier, is aligned with God. That God has been preparing him, that God has been, has been paving the way and shaping his life to this very day. That's David. Three themes that I, I see kind of flowing here. The themes are this, they're listed in the order of service. What we see here is a selfless love 
a selfish contempt, and then a self-defeating jealousy in our text. These opening five verses, we see this selfless love. Now, of course, when we read this, we get the sense, it's pretty obvious, it's very clear, that everyone loves David. Everyone loves David. Judah and Israel, the parts of, it, the, the, parts of the people of God, verse 16, love David. Saul's servants, verse 22, they love David. Saul's daughter, verse 20, loves David. Jonathan, right out of the gates, verse 1, Jonathan loves David. And even back, as I mentioned in chapter 16, because of what he offered to the king, even Saul himself loved David. But before we appreciate this friendship that Jonathan has, uh, an affection that he has for David, let's just highlight this right out. Jonathan has every reason to hate David. He is gaining all of this notoriety and praise as a victorious warrior. Jonathan himself was a victorious warrior. We read of this elsewhere. And Jonathan himself, being the eldest son of the king, is the rightful heir to the throne. Now David is getting this attention and this praise. But here there's this unique love that Jonathan has, even though it's easy to envision that they're that these these two men are similar ages. Actually, they're not. Scholars would highlight that Jonathan would have been 20 plus years older than David, his elder. And although it's it's not clear yet that David is the appointed and anointed king, Saul and presumably Jonathan had their suspicions that he is going to be the one. And then there's this this beautiful faith. That Jonathan expresses here because he chooses unity instead of rivalry with David. I think it's the expression of faith because Jonathan was there. He would have seen David with the sling and the rock. And it wasn't it wasn't that which is is what it was impressive. It was the fact that the Lord God was with him, that Jonathan was a man of faith after God's heart. And he knew the power of God that was behind David. He wants to be aligned with with God. Unlike his father, Saul, who is increasingly rejecting God and the ways of God, instead, Jonathan is going to befriend. Jonathan makes a covenant with David. He is going to, to bond himself. Even the verb here that he, his soul was knitted to Jonathan is one that elsewhere gives the, the connotation of a, of a political pact to accomplish things, a bond that serves political purposes. But then Jonathan does something Instead of trying to, to gain power politically, Jonathan now does something that is incredibly selfless in his love and friendship with David. He takes off his royal robe and gives it to him. He takes all David has is this, this imagine the scene, this lowly shepherd who now has a sword thanks to killing Goliath. But he, he's just a lowly shepherd now in the presence of the royal court, given the royal robe, given uh, his bow, given these, these weapons of, of Jonathan. And many scholars highlight that even this would have been an act of, of, abdication, of abdication, that he is giving over his royal rights to David to signify, I see that you are God's chosen king, not, not I, but you are the rightful heir. He loved David. And we will go on to see that his love uh, for Jonathan's love and their friendship goes to a level of sacrifice 
uh, that, that for Jonathan to keep this covenant, it was very, very costly uh, to him. And there's, there's things to illustrate that we'll find in weeks ahead that are, that are uh, a beautiful testimony of that. So there's this selfless love. Then there's this selfish contempt. If you pick up in verse 6 through 16, you know, there's this, this, this country pop song that uh, is, is making its way across the nation of Israel where women are, are gathered in the streets and they're singing and, and celebrating of this song. And, and what is the response? Saul's king, you know, the, the, the song is, the lyrics are that Saul has, I mean, that, uh, that Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And what is his response? Saul is, verse 8, very angry and very displeased. What, what drew Jonathan's heart to David was that he was a man after God's own heart as well. But that's exactly the thing that repulsed Saul away from David. He could see that, verse 12, the Lord was with him. So the fact that David was a man of faith and prayer is something that's, that, that Saul despised. And by the way, David has done nothing up until now. He's done absolutely nothing to, uh, to create this enmity personally. He, he's, he's been faithful. He's honored the king. In fact, he'll, he'll continue to honor Saul as king, as we'll see in the weeks ahead. I don't even think, honestly, that David picks up on the fact that that Saul has it out for him personally. And you, I know that's hard to believe since he just threw a spear at him. But I think he's just chalking it up to, hey, the guy's out of his mind. Like he, he's, you know, he, he's mad crazy. He has these episodes. I mean, verse 10 t- tells us that he had a spear with him all the time. He's anxious. He's 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 coming unhinged. And so he has one of his episodes. And it wasn't something personal for him. Of course, the contrast is is here. And Saul could have, Saul would have been wise to say, this is God's design. This is God's desire. And I'm not going to, I'm not, I, I've already been told by the by, by Samuel, the high priest, that it's not me, that the kingdom is not with me. I'll 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 patiently, graciously give things over to David. But he resists at every time, at every turn, it seems. As we will discover, because he is selfish. He could have said, this is God's instrument. This is best for the praise of God and for the people of God. That David would assume this. Instead, he spends his day in opposition. Selfishly absorbed in his own desires, his own reputation, his own, uh, his own authority, his own craving to, to maintain a kingdom. He's already been told he will lose. Of course, he hasn't altogether lost his mind. He still is crafty. He still thinks that he's in control. And that leads us to this last thing here that it kind of picks up in verse 17, which I would see as a a self-defeating jealousy. Now, it's kind of a misnomer. All jealousy is self-defeating, just like all sin. Ultimately, as much as we may try to employ things sinfully that would gain us, we lose. It is self-defeating. It's harmful in the end. We gain and advance nothing if we nurse jealous thoughts. That's true here of Saul. What does verse 9 say? Look at the text. It says that Saul eyed David from that day on. That's like the green-eyed, in translated, that's the green-eyed monster we refer to as what? Jealousy and envy. It's the green eye, that monster. He crafts plans. He can see, Saul sees that his daughter... Mikhail loves David, and so now he, oh, this is wonderful. He envisions a plan 
by which to give her in marriage, in verse 21, to be a snare for David. Now, a, a poor shepherd would not have been able to afford a dowry for a king's daughter. So Saul says, look, I've got this great idea. I'm going to send you into war again and again. Oh, and by the way, the dowry is going to be that you would head out into war and you would have to capture an impossible task of a hundred Philistines. What is what, what happens? <laughs> well, he brings back 200. Yikes. Can't even imagine what evidence looked like that day. And so the jealous plot, of course, the, the plot that's born and, 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 and uh, is rooted in his own jealousy altogether backfires because David is not only alive, he's not killed by the Philistines. He succeeds two times over, and also his reputation begins to soar even all the more. What does verse 30 say? David was more, had more success than all the servants of David so that his name was highly esteemed. And then what happens? Saul's tormented. His spiritual depression continues. His discontent only continues. And he is, why? Why is all this continuing? Because he has sour circumstances in life? No. It's because he's at odds with God and with God's chosen. You know how sometimes we make this shift? And I'm going to do I'm just telling you I'm making it now. We go from their world to our world. What about for you? I mean, these are these are real experiences. These are real emotions. Do you know anxious fear? Do, do, do you want control and you cannot have it? Maybe I should ask people close to you. Uh, what about when your plans get frustrated and then you double down? Instead of surrendering to God. I know what that smells like. I know what that feels like in my own experience. What, do you struggle there? Do you struggle with, with, with fear? Do you struggle with anger? What, what about jealousy? Oh. There's not a single person that would like to admit that. Jealousy is that creepy sin. Right? I don't know how else to describe it. I heard someone else describe it that way. I said, that's exactly what it is. Jealousy is that creepy sin that we would never want to admit resides and exists in our experience. But it happens, though. It certainly happens, especially when we compare ourselves to others, their, their station, their circumstances. We're scrolling through social media and we see the successes and we see the followers and we see the abundance of likes. And we say, oh, that's so wonderful for them. I'm so, I'm so happy for them. No, we don't. Oftentimes we say, I should have that. What about me? We are remarkably self-referenced, aren't we? Let's, let's, be, let's, let's, let's have a real, frank, honest moment of inventory. I should have that. Well, that would be simply coveting. But envy goes a step further. There's another evil step. Uh, A theologian, Cornelius Plantinga, puts it so well. Envy, he writes, is a nastier sin than covetousness. 
What an envier wants is not, first of all, what another has. What an envier wants is for another not to have it. To covet is to want somebody else's good so strong that one is tempted to steal it. To envy is to resent somebody else's good so much that one is tempted to destroy it. The coveter has empty hands and wants to fill it with someone else's goods. The envier has empty hands and therefore wants to empty the hands of the envied. What the envier really wants is to spoil something or someone. This is is an age-old problem. If you don't think so, just look at Cain. Cain Cain didn't just want what his brother had. He wanted his brother dead, Abel. Now, if you struggle with envy... There is a prideful comparative element, right? Now, students, I don't mean to pick on you, but grades are starting to come out. And it's kind of nice when you get an A, isn't it? But if you struggle with envy, it's not enough to get an A. You'd like to be the only one who got an A. Because sometimes sharing the glory, sharing that high place feels like being a loser. I think you get the picture. Walker Percy, Southern fiction writer, in his book Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book, writes this. Why? We're still in the realm of inventory here, folks. Don't lose me. We're still having that honest, frank moment about our own quiet, dark thoughts. Why is it that the self... Percy writes, though it professes to be loving, caring, to prefer peace to war, concord to discord, life to death, to wish other selves well, not ill. In fact, secretly relishes wars and rumors of war, news of plane crashes, assassinations, mass murders, obituaries, to say nothing of local news about acquaintances dropping dead in the street. Gossip about neighbors getting in fights or being detected in sexual scandals, embezzlements and other disgraces. Why do we enjoy bad news? It's because the love of the world and the ways of the world are inside and not the love of God and the love of God's ways. Back to pizza. In conclusion, we're that much closer to lunch. What about this non-neutrality? Here's what Jesus says about it. Matthew 12, verse 30. You are either for me or you are against me. His words, not mine. Direct quote. You can look it up yourself. It's in the Gospel of Luke. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 12, verse 30. Whoever is not... With me, Jesus says, is against me. It echoes of what we heard read earlier in the Gospel of Luke, the cost of discipleship in our New Testament reading, even, anima, even that we would have to love God and, and, and sacrifice allegiances to self and family. The greater king and the greater son of David, Jesus comes and says, I am king. Repent, submit, trust, 
follow me. And, and, you, and you may say, I, I know, I, I've said it to myself. I heard it from a guy I was trying, a friend of mine I was trying to witness to a couple of weeks ago. He would prefer to remain neutral for the time being. I'll deal with that at a later time of life. I'm not really wanting to take up the question of Jesus and all of those details right now. Subconsciously, consciously, maybe you're saying, I'll commit, I'll make a decision later, I would conveniently like to remain neutral. I'm sorry, but there is not a single person, if you could find it, please show me, a single instance where someone has encountered the true Jesus and the testimony of the New Testament and walked away neutral. I'm not saying that they're all following him, of course they're not. But there is no neutrality with the God-man. As Pastor Tim Keller puts it well, either you'll have to kill Jesus or you'll have to crown him. But the one thing you can't say is, gee, isn't he an interesting person? His claims don't allow that type of answer or position. Jesus cannot be simply liked. Remember, we're not talking about pizza toppings here. You either kill him or you crown him in your life. Right now, we're doing this in any number of areas of our life. And if you want a hint and if you want a clue as to where you may not be putting him, crowning him, exalting him, enthroning him as the Lord of your hearts, then look at the things that you are most anxious about, most angry about, and most jealous about. And if you probe there and you dig, you will find out what that is or who that is. Jesus has a way of revealing where our treasure is. And for Saul here, he wanted reputation. He wanted control. He wanted the praise of others. He didn't want to lose his kingdom. What is it for you? What do you desire? What do you crave? Jonathan, in his love and his friendship with David, denied his own rights. Gave, it, gave them over. Gave them up. And submission and surrender. Friends, are you, are you friends with God? Have you truly enthroned Jesus as Lord of your life and over your heart? So often we like to think that if a leader comes and says, you're either for me or against me, that they're just some narcissistic, you know, insecure person. And maybe they are. Inevitably, whenever you do that, whenever you encounter a situation where someone comes and says, oh, you must be for me or against me right now. We know that there's some kind of strange power play Something's something's awry because inevitably somewhere in the midst of that, they're going to have to say, overlook some of my faults. And come follow me. But not with Jesus. He is the perfect shepherd who loves his sheep, who lays down his life for his his sheep, even when our hearts are divided. He shows us a love that is. Immeasurable and so profound that it drives him to to throw off his kingdom and his glory and the incarnation, the humiliation and the cross. And friends, in response, we need to surrender all of our control and our authority and our allegiance over to our good 
King Jesus. Every day, in every way, and in every area, we need to stop loving the world and trying to play God. And we need to instead befriend and love God. Let that reach into every area of our life. You can't do this, and I can't do this without God's help. So let's ask for it. Father, right now we pray that you'd guide us away from sin and self towards the things that reflect you and your glory. For those who are here today who are struggling, who are even offended, I pray that you would work in their hearts and their questions, that you would lead them, prompt them, guide them, guide all of us, Lord, into deeper trust and faith. Forgive us, Lord. We know that there's jealousy and envy and anxiety. We love the world. We love control. At times, it's very ugly. We try to justify it. It's foolishness. Lord, bring us to the end of ourself. Help us to trust you. We know that there are things in our circumstances that weigh heavy. We know we live in a broken world. We know that there's corruption. It saddens us. We pray you'd restrain evil in the world. All the the variety of forms of evil that trouble our soul, Lord, we think of how much we would love to see more peace and, and, and more joy. Lord, I pray you would work hope into people, people who are sick, people who are are burdened with great worry. Would you grant them strength and perseverance? Lord, we pray that you'd be merciful. Teach us, shape us, use us to show forth what a friendship with God looks like. For Christ's sake, we pray. Even now, as Jesus taught his disciples, as we pray together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive 